But the primary goal was uh, minimizing the negative impact on our customers and our operations. We want to uh, plan our service levels and our service design for our customers' needs, not our vehicles' needs. Welcome to another episode of Transit Unplugged News and Views. We have a couple of great interviews for you this week. We start off with Doran Barnes and Carl Gannat talking about their hydrogen fuel cell bus fleets and why they chose hydrogen as their fuel of choice to reach their zero emissions targets. Check out our LinkedIn feed for a link to the U.S. Department of Energy spotlight on hydrogen as an alternative fuel source. Now then we hear from Jim Herring, CIO of MV Transportation, with two books that have made a huge difference in his leadership and career. Of course, we have Alea Carey with her messaging minute and three ways to add some extra punch to your marketing messages. All this and more on Transit Unplugged News and Views. This is Transit Unplugged. I'm Paul Comfort. Good to be with you on another edition of the world's leading transit executive podcast, Transit Unplugged News and Views this week. We're focused on hydrogen fuel for buses, and we're excited to have with us two of the nation's leaders in the hydrogen fuel cell bus technology and using it uh, in a practical sense day-to-day in their transit systems. And that's Doran Barnes, who is CEO of Foothill Transit, and Carl Gannat from Champaign-Urbana Mass Transit District. Both previous guests on the show, and happy to have you both back. Happy to be back. And Doran, you and I were recently together in Nashville talking the same topic as you were on the CEO roundtable there. Hydrogen is, is pretty interesting, Doran. Let's start with you. Um, you you have, the, I think, the largest hydrogen fuel bus fleet in the nation. Is that right? We do. We have bragging rights for at least 10 minutes, and we'll take it. So <laughs> 33 hydrogen fuel cell buses that are on property and uh, entering operation. And you're in Southern California. We are in Eastern Los Angeles County, Southern California. So uh, talk to me a little bit about um, how you decided to invest in hydrogen fuel cell buses. Uh, I know you had done electric. You were one of the leaders in electric, uh, one of the pioneers in electric uh, battery buses. And now you're leaning into hydrogen some. We are indeed. And uh, we did start off with grid-powered battery electric buses. Our first group of buses were fast-charge buses. Uh, beauty is they could charge in less than 10 minutes, but they only went about 40 miles. Um, we then transitioned to longer-range battery electric buses, grid-powered buses. Um, got some really great experience with those vehicles as well. Um, those vehicles require about a five-hour charging time frame overnight. And they were earlier generation buses. So that group of buses has some range challenges in terms of meeting the service day. And we pivoted to hydrogen as a fuel that is still zero emission at the tailpipe, um, which was our goal. Um, but it also operates very much like our compressed natural gas powered buses in that we have over 300 miles worth of range. We can fuel the buses in less than 10 minutes. Operationally, it's very much like we've, what we've done historically and didn't require rethinking the business. So we were just launching those 33 buses. Our board doubled down and, and um, we have authorization to order 19 more. So that'll give us the largest lead for maybe 20 minutes, uh, but we'll take it. And we're excited about the future. Carl, how about you? Talk to us about your journey. Well, it wasn't altogether different. Um, we we had a couple of goals that we wanted to hit. One was we we wanted to be zero emission, and uh, for us that meant being intellectually honest. And so we wanted to be 
zero emission, not only uh, at the tailpipe, but we also wanted to be zero emission at the uh, fuel production. We didn't want to just plug into a grid that's burning coal um, or natural gas. And so we have a solar array that powers our electrolyzer. And so we're 100% zero emission from beginning to end. That also helps us accomplish a reduction in using fossil fuels, which is another one of our goals. But the primary goal was uh, minimizing the negative impact on our customers and our operations. We want to uh, plan our service levels and our service design for our customers' needs, not our vehicles' needs. So we didn't want to have to be swapping out vehicles. We didn't want to have to pull over and, and sit at the curb uh, to do opportunity charging for 15 or 20 minutes while passengers are waiting. And we're paying, by the way, drivers to sit around and wait. Um, so uh, we wanted to maintain our operational efficiency, and we wanted our vehicles to be there when our customers want and expect them to be there. Hydrogen accomplishes that. If I recall right, uh, you actually, do you have a hydrogen plant there, Carl, at your place? Yes. Yeah. And, and tell us a little bit about where you're at and your fleet, what type of service you operate, and then maybe explain to me, you know, what lessons you've learned in, um, in making hydrogen. Sure. Um, well, it's complicated and, and it, it is a long learning curve. I can tell you that none, none of us on staff are uh, engineers or scientists. And so it, it has been an interesting challenge. It has required us to partner with people who do know what they're doing. I would strongly suggest that anybody going down this road finds a consultant who can uh, give them the necessary assistance to, to uh, move forward with it. Um, it, the, the process has been uh, challenging, but it's been really rewarding. I, I would say, uh, looking back on it, the, the one thing that I would do differently today is I would have gone bigger. I would have gotten more vehicles out of the gate, kind of like how Doran did. You know, he, he went big with 33 vehicles right away. We did two. We have two articulated 60 foot hydrogen fuel cell electric buses. And I wish we had done at least five, really 10. We've got 10 40 footers on order right now. Um, so by the end of this calendar year, we'll have a total of 12 buses. And now, um, are they, are you ordering them from an original equipment manufacturer or is this aftermarket things you have to add on? How does that work? Uh, OEM. Yeah, it's, it's new flyer. Uh, they, they were, we'll, we'll be getting their second generation hydrogen fuel cell electric bus. Uh, it's got the new Ballard FC move fuel cell on board. And uh, so we're really looking forward to that. The, the two Arctics that we have are the previous generation, and it's got an 85-kilowatt fuel cell instead of the 100-kilowatt fuel cell. And geographically, so that people around the world can place where your operation is, where, would you, where are you closest? What's the closest big city you're close to? So we're really smack dab in between Chicago, Indianapolis, and St. Louis. Uh, those, those are the three points of a triangle that we're right in the middle of. Uh, it's where the University of Illinois is, a Big Ten university with about uh, 57,000 students. We do all the campus transportation and the community transportation as well. Jordan, I guess we should have asked you that up front too. Tell us a little bit about your system itself and then talk to us about, so Carl has a plant on site where he makes it, but you have fuel delivered to you. So tell us about your system and then about what it's like getting it delivered to you. Absolutely. Um, the, the communities that we serve are the suburbs to the east of downtown Los Angeles. So there are 22 cities that are part of the Foothill Transit Joint Powers Authority. They sit on our governing board, 
And then we connect to probably another 10 or 12 cities with Los Angeles being the most dominant. Uh, we provide a combination of local service throughout our suburban service area, but also ex commuter express service connecting into downtown Los Angeles. Of course, downtown Los Angeles is probably our single biggest draw. It clearly is our single biggest draw. We do also have a lot of connections to colleges throughout our region, and we've seen that to be a, a very um, a market that fits very nicely with the transit services that we provide. So that's something that we've leaned into. In terms of our fuel, unlike Carl, we're not producing uh, the hydrogen on site. Part of it is land constraints. We operate in fairly constrained locations. We have two operating locations. Both of them are running with more buses on property than their design capacity. So space is always a big challenge in terms of uh, fueling technology. Um, so instead of producing the hydrogen on site, we're actually having it trucked in in liquid form. We have a 25,000 gallon hydrogen uh, storage tank. That fuel is then vaporized, compressed, and, and placed onto vehicles. Uh, fortunately, our hydrogen provider is about 30 miles from where um, we're actually dispensing that fuel. So we're not trekking it long distances, but we are bringing it in in, in a liquid form. And and uh, you mentioned at the Think Transit conference, Doran, that the cost of hydrogen is still a little high. Is that right? It is. And I think that's really one of the biggest challenges that um, that we need to continue to lean in on and, and work to overcome. Right now, when we look at our cost for hydrogen, um, it's about two and a half times the price of natural gas. I say that with the qualifier that natural gas prices went sort of crazy here in Southern California uh, during the January, February timeframe, and that differential narrowed quite a bit. But on a typical day, it's about two and a half times the price of natural gas. We're hopeful that as more and more hydrogen production comes online, that that price point will come down. And uh, there are investments that are being made both on the private side and the government side. Department of Energy has a huge program to try to create more hydrogen generation to indeed drive that price down. And Carl, you generate your own hydrogen. Do you know how the uh, cost of production compares with the cost of purchasing hydrogen on the market? I don't have a, a good answer to that yet. We're still working on uh, doing a final acceptance of our, of our electrolyzer. Um, so we've done, you know, you, you do shutdowns and startups and you end up venting a lot of the gas that you produce. And so we don't have a really uh, realistic um, cost estimate yet, but but we are working toward that. Um, but, I, but I will say at the end of the day, you know, water is our main cost um, because we're producing our own electricity. We're harvesting it via, via solar. And so uh, our cost is going to be significantly less. Than Doran's cost right now, though Doran's point is uh, spot on that that is the singular biggest challenge for uh, the adoption of hydrogen technology right now. We've got to get the per kilogram cost down into a reasonable uh, a, a reasonable range. Of course, the more people who are using it uh, and the more producers of it, then that that will uh, ramp up supply and and uh, drop down cost. Are either of you? Um do you have any idea about how many major transit systems in the U.S. are are trying hydrogen? I mean, I probably know of at least six or eight personally, but do you do either of you have any idea on that? I don't know the specific number, but I, I know that more and more are coming online, and and even more than that are uh, looking at it. So, yeah, your your estimate of six or seven is probably pretty accurate in terms of who's actively using it right now. Yeah. But then you look at Las Vegas, who is placing a big order. They don't have them in service yet, but they will. 
They'll be coming online. Indianapolis is looking at it. Flint is expanding theirs. Uh, so, you know, there, there are a bunch more that are coming on. It's really starting to get some traction. And, and Doran, what's the lead time? You just uh, got authorization to buy some more vehicles. If somebody is interested in doing all this, do you, is there a lead time on the vehicle acquisition? Do you know? Well, on the vehicle acquisition, it's pretty much the same as any transit vehicle. Okay. Like Carl, we've, our first group of buses were manufactured by New Flyer. Our second group of buses will be manufactured by Eldorado. Um, they're both running somewhere between 14 and 18 months in terms of lead time. The beauty of working with both of those companies, and there's certainly many others that are out there, but both of those companies are putting the fuel cell technology in the product that they sell with other fuel technology. So you can buy the new flyer bus as a diesel bus, a CNG bus, a fuel cell bus, or a battery electric bus. Interesting. So really the, the propulsion system is just one piece of that overall product. Um, the other thing that, that is certainly important to note is the lead time for the fueling infrastructure. And we've seen on basically every project that we've ever done, whether it's grid power or whether it's hydrogen, having the fueling capability in place always seems to be the biggest challenge in terms of having that ready to go. Carl, you, uh, both of you have made sure that you use the word electric when referring to hydrogen fuel cell electric buses. Can you talk to us about why we include that word in there? Uh, sure. They're electric buses. So <laughs> you know, let, let's call them what they are. They have uh, batteries in them, right? It's just that they're powered through the hydrogen fuel? They are literally battery electric buses. Instead of plugging in the vehicle or connecting it to a charger in, in some form and, and charging the batteries that way, it has an onboard charger, charger via the, the fuel cell. And so they are battery electric buses. The power that, that moves the motors comes from batteries. Um, but our fuel cells keep the batteries charged between 40 and 60% all the time. So that's a battery sweet spot that extends the life of the battery um, for the life of the bus. So instead of a uh, pure battery electric vehicle where you charge the battery up all the way and then you run it down all the way and then you charge it up, run it down, that kills the battery. They hate that. And, and so it shortens the lifespan by about half. And, and so you have to replace those batteries before the life of the bus is up. So this is not only an onboard charger, it's a battery extender, but it is a battery electric vehicle. Interesting. Doran, one of the things I continually hear from public transportation agency executives, particularly on the East Coast and the West Coast, is that while they are very committed to a zero emission future, they're concerned about plugging into the grid because the grid can be unreliable. Uh, we've seen Superstorm Sandy is what one CEO told me in the Mid-Atlantic area. And he said, Paul, one of my jobs is to evacuate the major cities that I serve um, if there is a, a big storm like that. And if I have to have my vehicles, if they're 100% battery electric buses where they're charged into the electric grid and the grid goes down because of a storm, we're literally dead in the water and I can't have that. Talk to that some and some of the rationale people are, are is that one of the main rationales you hear why people want to consider a hydrogen future? It's one of them. I, I think resiliency is a, is a topic that is an industry we need to continue to lean in. Uh, whether it's hydrogen, whether it's grid power, having that resiliency to respond to uh, natural disasters or other events that might happen is really important. Um, on a more fundamental basis, and we actually had this last summer, um, California, Southern California often has very warm days when you get into August, September. 
And we actually at one point got a call from the governor's office asking us to not operate our electric fleet if possible because of the pressures on the grid. Again, I don't think we should abandon grid technology. I think there's a space for both of these technologies. But as we look at them, we need to understand what are those challenges that we face from a resiliency standpoint? How do we make sure that we maintain that resiliency? Uh, with hydrogen, we would have the same problem if we couldn't, couldn't get a hydrogen delivery. So again, looking at resiliency from all of its different aspects, really critical in terms of our mission. So right now, Doran, you, you have, you're like an all of the above solution. You have CNG, electric, and hydrogen electric? At the moment, we have all, all three of those technologies in operation. Uh, CNG is the, the bulk of our fleet. And there we are able to pull the natural gas from the Southern California gas pipeline, compress it, put it on board our vehicles. Uh, but yes, we're doing a little bit of everything. Now, you and I were on this panel with um, uh, Erin Pinkerton from Canada, British Columbia, Canada. And she was mentioning that they have like a, a, a mid-range fuel they're using, which is like uh, a meth, almost like methane gas. It sounded like, I, don't, I know that's not exactly what it was. But um, CNG to me also seems like a mid-level. It does bring down the particulates, et cetera, and the carbon in the air, right? I mean, CNG is better than diesel, clean diesel, right? Well, I think, again, all of these technologies, as you look at them, natural gas is a clean, clean fuel. We're actually using renewable natural gas, which takes it one step further. Um, each of the fuel types have different emission profiles. And so part of it's a matter of what are you measuring and different fuels stack up differently based on those measurements. The goal is ultimately to be a truly green, zero emission, you know, all the way through technology. And with what Carl's doing in terms of using solar power to produce hydrogen to fuel the vehicle, that's really, I think, the ultimate goal we're trying to get to. We've got a long way to go, but if we don't keep exploring and learning and advancing, we're never going to get where we want to be. Well, that's a good segue, Doran. I was going to ask uh, Carl about you guys have formed a group, right? A hydrogen fuel cell bus council. Tell me about that. It sounds like that's your goal, right? To continue to pursue the scientific, et cetera, practical applications of hydrogen fuel in public transit. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. Uh, you know, when, when we started down this road, it, it was really obvious that when you talk about an electric vehicle, everybody automatically assumes battery electric. And so that's what people think about. So that has... That has advanced the conversation about electric vehicles. It's advanced the conversation of battery electric to 10 or 15 years ahead of hydrogen fuel cell electric vehicles. And so what we wanted to do as a, as a council is we're not in competition with, with uh, Tesla or that technology. We just want to catch up. We think in terms of resiliency, like what, what Doran was talking about, you, you know, not, not having all of our eggs in one basket is a healthy thing for us. And so we, we just want to be one of the baskets. We're not trying to remove or eradicate battery electric. We think that there's a place for all of these things, and that's healthier for the industry. And so the council is trying to advance the conversation, advance the education about hydrogen fuel cell technologies so that we can become a viable alternative. Yeah, I think that's great. Doran, you're very active in the California Transit Association uh, what have you seen from other agencies in the state with regard to hydrogen fleets that have made them successful? Well, I think in terms of, of where we are in California in particular, uh, California Air Resources Board has mandated that we move to zero emission fuel technologies. That's a statewide mandate, ramps up over time. It's the innovative clean transit rule is what we're operating under. So in California, through the California Transit Association and other groups, 
we've really tried to lean in to figure out how do we best accomplish that mandate that we have. And that really comes from a tremendous amount of information sharing, learning from each other. I think that's the great thing about our business in general. Um, people are willing to share. We want to learn from each other. We want to tell people, you know, what's gone well in our operation as we've been on this journey, but also what hasn't gone well. Because sometimes the things that didn't go well are more valuable than the successes. Um, so through the California Transit Association, um, through the Hydrogen Fuel Cell Bus Council, through a variety of groups, again, I think it's our industry coming together, really learning about how to advance these technologies. What we've seen with hydrogen in particular in California is that our experience and the challenges with using grid power, others have experienced similar challenges and are now looking to hydrogen as another way to get to that zero emission future. Carl, do you have any uh, final thoughts you'd like to share? Uh, wow. I, I mean, I could go on and on, uh, but I know we have a time uh, constriction. So, uh, you know, I, I think I, what my final thought would be, uh, if you're a transit manager and you are trying to figure out how to accommodate the highest degree of zero emission with um, the resources that you have and the operations that you have, to not... Um, uh, exclude hydrogen from your consideration because of your fears and concerns about the technology or or how it works. Pull that onto the table, make it be one of the things that you consider and uh, analyze because I, I think it's an important aspect of the mix. Doran, uh, final thoughts from you? We talked about this a little bit at the Transit Unplugged conference about our broad mission, what we do as an industry, and really are, we're about making our communities better, providing mobility, taking care of the environment, and we do that in an environment where we all work together, we all share. Um, and again, I think the more we can share, the more we can lean in, the more we can learn from each other, the stronger we are as an industry, and ultimately, the better we are able to accomplish those goals. So you know, I encourage anybody who has interest in this space to tap into what's out there in terms of resources, experiences, um, get involved. There's a lot of great information. Everybody wants to do good things. That's what this is all about. Well, thank you both for the work you're doing to help promote what I call environmental stewardship. And I think, as both of you know, during the pandemic, that became uh, one of the key obligations and responsibilities that most public transit agencies now realize that really is part of what their core mission is. It's not just about increasing riders uh, to the big, tall buildings in the downtowns anymore. It's a big part of it, but that's not just it. It's also things like environmental stewardship. It's also adding equity and inclusion to our communities. We have a vehicle, pun intended, to do so much good, like you said, Doran, for our community. I think uh, we need to go on all eight cylinders to finish out the, the analogy and to make sure we're trying every option available to do just that. Would you agree? Well Absolutely. said, Paul. <laughs> Thank you, Doran. Thank you, Carl, for being our guest today on Transit Unplugged and continuing uh, to push forward on hydrogen fuel. Thank you. Hi, I'm Alea Carey, a communications consultant who loves working with public transit agencies. Wow, what a great conversation with Doran and Carl. Many members of the public are interested in learning about hydrogen fuel cell vehicles and the other intricacies of technology and transit. To help support and even geek out with these highly invested audiences and in the interest of transparency, it's important to communicate about these complex topics. But how do we cook these complex topics down into simple communications about benefits? When I talk about communicating benefits, I think about three things. Short, bold headlines, easy to understand icons, and happy users. 
Short, bold headlines grab a viewer's attention and can thoroughly communicate a benefit even if the viewer doesn't look at the rest of your ad. Icons are something we use in transit marketing a lot because we understand we're often communicating to people on the go. Icons also communicate across languages, meaning you can rely less on translation. Finally, showing happy writers gives the promise of a positive end result to using your service. And if you're communicating about low emissions transit, since that keeps the air clean for everyone, you can even show happy, healthy non-riders benefiting from your system's smart ecological choice. If you'd like to talk more about communicating benefits or anything else related to communications in public transit, look me up on LinkedIn. My first name is spelled E-L-E-A, last name C-A-R-E-Y. And now on to the leadership development portion of the Transit Unplugged podcast. As you know, every other week we bring you a leader, uh, a thought leader, who talks about leadership development. So many of you have told me in the past that this podcast has been integral to your career progress because you listen to some of the best executives in the industry and it helps you grow. And so we thought, why not actually directly give you information which can help you grow as a leader? And that's what today is about. We're excited to have with us to share today Jim Herring, who is Chief Information Officer of MV Transportation, the largest American-owned contractor of public transportation services in the country. Jim, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks, Paul. Love doing this. Absolutely. Jim was recently at our executive summit at the Think Transit Conference in Nashville, and I mentioned that we were doing this, and he, uh, we're trying to start, in addition to folks just talking directly to things like emotional intelligence and our recent interview with folks like Stephen Covey, we also want to start having folks talk about some of the books that have really impacted their leadership and give you an opportunity to maybe build your own leadership library. And Jim has two great books that he wants to talk about today. Uh, Jim, tell us about the books and how they've impacted your life. Yeah, thanks so much, Paul. Yeah, uh, there's a couple of them, and they've stuck with me for the last couple of decades. The first one I would call Radical Candor. And uh, actually, a colleague brought this to me probably 10 years ago and really said, hey, Jim, I really think this defines you. And and I listened, and I read this book, and Kim Scott's a great author, and she had a company out in Silicon Valley. But the simplest way to talk about it is it brings together two principles that we were taught when we were young. And the first is, if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say it at all. And the second was, when you're at home, be who you are. And when you're at work, be a professional. And then we split those two. And she breaks that up into four quadrants. And, and if you think, if you over you want these actions, they can lead to bad leadership behaviors. And, and the optimal quadrant, be able to challenge directly and care deeply. If you care deeply, but you don't challenge directly, then you might not get results. And they would call that ruinous empathy. But if all you do is challenge directly, but you don't care deeply, then you get the other side of the spectrum. So this has really, really stuck with me. And there's so many people that tell that story that, well, I'm, I'm at work and I should be a professional and, and all I want to do, and so many people can be conflict adverse, but, but the real line for that first is actually genuinely caring deeply for people, learning about it, just like you do. Paul, you do such a great job of that. You, you know so many people, you get to know them, get, you know, what drives them. And I think you have to do that with all the people, but it has to be genuine. You see too many leaders sometimes that, They've been told to ask questions, but I'm not sure they really care and how deep it is. And the second one is when you when you establish that care and that compassion and that relationship with people, that means sometimes you have to challenge them with hard things. But because they know you care deeply, they usually accept that and it usually drives their different results. So that's why I love it. There's a lot more to the book around that. And I use it for talent management, all kinds of things like that as well. But that should give you a little bit of 
taste for that. Yeah, that's interesting. It reminds me of the principle, uh, you know, that um, iron sharpens iron. And, uh, you know, a brother is born for adversity and we can speak into each other's lives. And if and the old saying that people don't um, care how much, you know, until they know how much you care. Uh, and so that's, that's right. kind of what you're saying. You know, they want to understand, OK, well, he really does have or she really does have my best interest at heart. And when she's making this critique of my work, is that kind of how it works, Jim? Yeah, no, that, that's that's exactly it. And if you get to the care deeper, you, you'll get some people that, again, you think that if all you do is challenge, that can be condescending, intimidating, and all those things. But again, if you all you do is just care deeply, then that just puts you in a nurturing role. It puts you, when, you met, when you put those two together, Paul, and I know that you care about me as a human, you know about my family, you, you work through me through hard times, like everybody goes up and downs. And when you stand with them and they know that you care about their future success, I really think that's the thing. Okay. And I think, you know, and I trust that my team would say, you know, I know Jim cares, but he cares about my success. And the reason that he's challenging me is because he cares about my success. Right. But you don't do it in an intimidating way, in a condemning way. But sometimes that means you have to say, you know, are you really giving your best right now? Like I've seen you do better work, but it takes a really great relationship where they know you care to ask that question or to challenge them even to deliver a result they've never seen before. You know, I think you could do more. And that's a challenge. It's uncomfortable for some people. But if they know that you always want the best for them, they'll, they'll take that on. So yeah. I think there's just a couple of great examples how that might work. That is good. And I know that many people feel like um, they don't have enough real direction at work uh, and they feel like they're floating. And I think a lot of times that's because their supervisors are a little worried. They don't want to like confront them with things and they just let them float until they're so far off the, the right path for what they're supposed to be doing that then they get fired. And that's not fair to people. I think, I think right. we owe it to them to keep them kind of within the boundaries. I always say, you know, for, for me, uh, the leadership pattern I practice and have done for years is I get us to agree on the goals, but also the boundaries. We agree on that. And then you have to report back on iterative improvement as you move along. And as long as you stay within those boundaries, I'll let you use your own God-given creativity to get there. Do it however you want that's to. Right. Just stay within the boundaries and keep moving toward the goal. So what you're talking about really, to me, sounds almost like a coach from the sideline calling in plays. We're all still moving toward the goal though, right? Yeah, it's a little like that a lot. God, Kim gives a really great example in the book. And you see this with a lot of first line leads to your, to your earlier point that they have a hard time dealing with performance, mm. right? But it, because they know it could be a hard conversation, but if you can get that conversation and you realize that you actually care deeply about the person. Not dealing with their performance ends in a bad result for them. Just love yes. the way you said that book. Not dealing with it. They're going to wake up one day and be surprised and be like, why did I get fired? Well, you right. got fired because I didn't tell you for the last six months that you were missing the mark in this. You were missing the mark in that. And frankly, that's that's as much the leader's problem as it is the yes. employee's problem. Everybody so wants give, to win and succeed. Let's give one more little piece on that before we go to the next one. And I think you called it out well, especially for first-time supervisors. So what I've seen, and I'm sure you have too throughout your career, Jim, is that somebody does a good job as a line worker. Let's just say they're a, um, a mechanic. Uh, you know, a lot of people call them a wrench turner. So they've done a great job turning the wrenches. So they're like, ah, uh -uh. a slot opens up to be a supervisor. Tom, we're going to make you a supervisor in the shop. But they never train Tom on how to lead people. He only knows how to manage things. And he's been friends with all these guys and gals in the shop. And so he doesn't want to say anything to them. They're his buddies. So you talk to me now about, so I'm him. So tell me what you're going to tell me how to be a good supervisor using this principle. Yeah. So it sounds like, Paul, you have a really great relationship with your mechanics. I love that. 
first, you need to watch them, but you have to learn first how to not to just do everything yourself. So you've been great at your job, but now your job is about making every one of those employees better. So you have to resist the need to do more. You can coach, but you have to, your job is mostly to get all of them to do more, right? So I like to think about it this way, and that is just watch what they do. See what their possibilities are and help them reveal the great possibilities. The struggle for you will be resist the need because you're the best at it to just go in and do it for yourself. You have to realize part of what you're going to do, let them struggle a little bit. What you want in the end is your team that can do what you did, everyone in that aspect. If you can change that mindset and start to believe that rather than be the one to do it and to be the best at it, I need to teach 10 people how to be the best at it. And sometimes they're not going to be as good. Got to be okay with that. You got to work them through that. Wow, that's good. I wish I had a boss talk to me like that when I was younger, you know, on various things that I needed uh, coaching on. That's really good, Jim. All right, yeah. let's switch over to the Oz Principle. Tell us about that. What is the Oz Principle? Yeah, Oz Principle is a book written by um, uh, Roger Connors, and I've worked with a company called Partners in Leadership. Give them a little shout out here. And 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 again, I go back to, you know, because we've all matured as leaders, right? And I'm, right. I made big mistakes as a leader. Paul, I'm sure you made a couple of mistakes that you yeah. wish you could go back and be like, wow, I wish I knew. I wish somebody would have talked to me in that. Yes. And uh, I remember I was frustrated. I got to leaders of leaders, right? So first you lead a team and then you become a leader of leaders, right? And you're like, right. I made the big time, right? And, I'm, and all that. And I found myself really frustrated with this point. And you hear a lot of leaders say why doesn't my team care about the result as much as I do? Why, why don't they, why don't they own things? Why don't they, you know, and I was stuck in that. Right. And it, you know, for a long time, I thought, I thought it was all my team. Right. Which is a horrible mentality for a leader. Right. So I'm just going to confess that right here and be vulnerable. And so I got connected and I'm like, we, we got to get some training on accountability. And for me, accountability starts this. And, and one of the principles in the book, accountability for all of us probably would have came out when we were teenagers or kids and accountability tended to be something done to you. I did a thing, my parent held me accountable, or I was in school and I didn't do a thing and I was accountable. I either got a bad grade or something. There was always something done to you. But um, this book really focuses on accountability in a new definition. I'll give you the definition here, which is one's personal choice to rise above your circumstances and take the key actions necessary to get key results. So it gets accountability about being accountability for results. And it really empowers a whole group. So there's a lot of models with it that I can share. But that key point about accountability is the thing we do together where we're making a choice, regardless of circumstances, to rise above, to do the things I need to get results, which is the opposite of why, the way people have thought about accountability. And, and when you apply some of the models and the best teams are the ones that all have their eye focused on the same outcome and the same result, right, versus these lateral things. So. It's been a great concept. I work with them once a year. I usually bring them into a team and we spend a whole day on this accountability. There's several frameworks with it. And again, just changing that perspective about it's empowering to go, these yeah. are really my choices. Regardless of my circuit, I just I have choices. I always have choices. Now I continue to choose. How do I see it? How do I solve it? And how do I do it? Can you give us like um a practical example without names or anything like that or locations, but just when this principle has worked and you said, Oh yeah, that's good. Every time. So the main principle they have is there's two models to use. One they call above the line and below the line. And below the line is below the line of accountability. And underneath the line of accountability, again, the personal choice to rise up to achieve things, is things like, it's not my job. Nobody told me what to do. All these things. And, and it's okay to be below the line of accountability. We all go there, Paul. We all have those weak minutes for five minutes. We'll say, hey, let's go below the line. 
lots of stuff happening to me, circumstances, just everything's swarming around me. But now that you're done, now the question is, now what? Too many people get stuck there. And that and that's exactly the point. Now to get above the line of accountability, you got to be able to say, what do I what do I see around me? Let, let me just observe and see the landscape. Let me observe things. Now, what am I doing to contribute to this problem? Then what else can I do and when can I do it by? And it's this, it's this art of A, giving you space to go to the below the line and see all the things that happened to you, right? Outside forces came into play. We had a pandemic. We had all this stuff. We had traffic. We had accident. Okay, great. Now we got that all off our chest. But now what? Oh, you and I are still in charge. We still want to succeed. We still want to achieve a great result. What will we do? What should we do? What else can you and I do? And when will we do it? And then hold ourselves to take uh, accountable action. So it always keeps you marching towards the result versus that paralyzed feeling of I'm a victim and I'm tracked and there's nothing I can do. That's good. Those are both great books. I think uh, The Oz Principle and Radical Candor. I, uh, I looked, they're both on Amazon. So if folks want to try to get them, they can, they're still in print. And uh, thank you for sharing with us, Jim, uh, some practical guidance of even without reading those books, we can take those principles that you talked yeah. about and apply them in our leadership situation. Any final words you'd like to say? to uh, our young leaders and uh, even leaders our age, middle-aged leaders. No, Paul, just just thank you so much. Uh, You know, I've made some mistakes. So to your point, I wish somebody would have put some of these things on me when I was in my 20s and 30s and make mistakes. I think it's what makes us better. So I think honor the mistakes, but, you know, just keep applying yourself. I always just, if nothing else, be a learner. Just be a learner every day. You're going to make mistakes, embrace them, learn from them and get better. So thank you so much for the opportunity. Jim Herring, CIO of MP Transportation, thanks so much for being our guest today on the leadership development portion of Transit Unplugged. Thank you for listening to this episode of Transit Unplugged News and Views with our special guests, Doran Barnes, Carl Gannat, and Jim Herring. Now, coming up next week, we have Tom Hingson, director at Everett Transit, talking about his transit system. Here's a little soundbite of one thing that makes his transit system special. I think in the Pacific Northwest, for the the agency that's so small, we punch above our weight, particularly in adoption of electric vehicles. We currently have nine electric vehicles in service, and we recently accepted 10 more. So that's nearly half of our fleet is electric at this point. We're on target to be fully electrified on our fixed route by 2028. Now, don't forget... Visit transitunplugged.com to sign up for the newsletter so you're always in the loop with whatever is going on with the show. But if you have a question, a comment, or want to be a guest on the show, feel free to email us at info at transitunplugged.com. So until next week, ride safe, ride happy. We hope you're enjoying this episode of Transit Unplugged, the podcast. How would you like to see behind-the-scenes footage of the agencies that Paul visits? Then be sure to check out the new Transit Unplugged TV on YouTube, where transit evangelist Paul Comfort dives into the culture, the food, and the transit of major cities around the world. You'll see the operations control centers, how maintenance shops work, and the latest innovations taking place at agencies around the globe as we work together to improve the lives of our transit riders and our communities. Be sure to subscribe to Transit Unplugged TV on YouTube or at transitunplugged.com.